Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in. Find your way in the dark. Find a place to sit. Find somewhere next to someone you don't mind snuggling with. There is sad news this week, you've probably heard. Ray Bradbury has died. He lived 91 years, a long life, a good one. He filled the world with memories of times and people that are nearly as real as real. I grew up reading him, and I'm not a young man. His way with story was how I always wanted to see and report in the world. Ray never had a driver's license, and he wouldn't fly until late in life. We met fairly late in his life. We'd spoken on the phone quite a few times when I was working with the Organic Theater Company here in Chicago. We were interested in adapting and producing one of his novels. We met in person when he finally got over that lifelong aversion to flying. As he said, I had just got myself good and lubricated, and that was that. He said, and... <laughs> well, there's more, and I'll have more to say about him on next week's show. So, now, for tonight, we've got a nice, chilly tale to help swipe the summer sweat from our brows. And we'll get to it right after a few announcements. What are they? Let's see. I have now placed a set of guidelines on the Tales to Terrify Facebook page. These are for writers who want to submit stories, they're for narrators-to-be, and for authors who want to send us their ten terrifying minutes. Just go to Tales to Terrify on Facebook and you'll know all that you are like to know. 
Oh, yes. Go to our site on the web. Again, http colon. Well, you know what it is. It's talestoterrify.com. Make a contribution. Make a one-time gift or arrange to pay a couple of dollars, a couple of pounds monthly. It does help. And comments. Use the forum. If you like something, if you have suggestions, if you want to chat about some tale or some writer, stop by the forum. I would truly love to see a little family grow around what we're doing here, yes? I recently, this week as a matter of fact, had a long, impressive, well-written, articulate email from a listener who had some things he'd rather not hear, uh, cited some things he liked, and so forth. The only problem I had with it was I wish he had placed it into the forum so that people with similar or opposite or marginally different points of view could also chat with him. Anyway, ghost stories. What do we all think of ghost stories? Is that form of horror too tame for modern tastes now, jaded by more shrill and bloodier offerings, both on the screen and on print? Let me step aside here for a second and just say this. When I was beginning this part of my life as a writer, I've I've gone through a lot of phases. Most of the young horror writers I met were of a kind. There seemed to be a predilection for shaving the head, for tattooing the person. It's no problem there, but... There seemed in all of them a desperate urge to be hard, to show tough, to downplay the sensitive sides of their natures, and to cut it out of their work. And, as I say, that seemed to be reflected in most of what I was reading at the time. Hard, tough, bloody, and down in the muck. Okay, these guys, and and women, were writing ghosts with teeth, spooks that grabbed you by the... Well, well, let me uh, get out of this mood and just... Get back into what I really wanted to say. Uh, I think horror has to chill. It has to take its time. It has to develop character. It has to show us the place where we're going to be frightened. It has to lay it out for us. For me, the chilliest, most horrific movie in the genre is... Come on, let's all say it together. You know what it is, don't you? Yes. It's The Haunting reasonably faithful cinematic rendering of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. It is without color. Yes, it's in silvery black and white, with no special effects except some great sound cues and a few wobbly spiral staircase efforts, and with excellent acting by an ensemble cast and superb cinematography by Davis Bolton, with England standing in for New England, Robert Wise crafted a creepy, scary film that still leaves me unnerved when I watch it alone. And I do watch it alone. All with the notion of ghosts and hauntings and the question of what or who is haunted. Anyway, I gather that many of you young people need more than creeps and innuendo to get you trembling. Or can the whisper of the unknown still drive you under the covers? M.R. James once said that the best ghost tales are the ones set back in time. Well, it's not part of my brief as your host here in the nook to hold forth on my notions of form, literary history, and the like. I just read stories to you. And with that in mind... Here is a creepy tale by Gary 
McMahon. Gary's Black Glass was our main terrifying tale in Episode 3. At that time, I did not know Gary's work. I have since adjusted my reality and have come to like it very much. His novel, Rain Dogs, is quite wonderful, and I recommend it. So, snuggle down and get ready to check into... The Sand King by Gary McMahon Who is this who is coming? M. R. James 1. Seedon, huddled as it is on the craggy Northumberland coast, is a bleak and somewhat eerie place in the close season, a fading seaside town that echoes with the sullen ghosts of tourists and long-retired peer-end performers and the smell of salty fish and chips wrapped in greasy sheaves of newspaper. Now, however, those Victorian holidaymakers are long gone, replaced by a ringing silence that stretches across the sandbanks and the patches of dry crab grass to settle upon the grey North Sea like a faint mist. The current denizens of Seden are quiet, unassuming folk, mostly retired pensioners and commuter families, who go about their daily business without giving so much as a thought about the area's distant past. My wife and I found ourselves in Seden in search of solitude. We had already visited the lakes that year, and Sarah was born in North Yorkshire, so we had chosen to forgo the familiarity of the moors in favour of this calm little haven that we had discovered purely by chance in some old guidebook bought in a car boot sale. A bit bleak, isn't it? said Sarah, as I gently guided the Volvo along the serpentine coast road. Her pale blue eyes scanned the miles of empty beach, and beyond that the dirty band of surf that slowly and rhythmically lapped at the sand like the huge mutated tongue of some mythical sea beast. Yeah, I agreed. Bleak, lonely and peaceful. Just what we wanted. She turned to face me, her eyes catching the dull sunlight and blazing for a moment in the dim interior of the car. She almost smiled, then thought better of it. Instead, she pursed her thin lips and looked away again, back at the distant moribund sea. We drove past squat, red-brick holiday homes that were scattered randomly along the roadside, with sagging window frames and rotting timber porches that attempted to jut out into the sand as if striving for the water. These buildings looked sad and neglected, yearning for life to fill their empty spaces. I wondered when last they'd been filled with holiday laughter and the excited patter of children's feet. To the right of the road, small grassy hills undulated away to form higher peaks, roughly two or three miles distant. I could see that the area would be ideal for walking. The landscape held a kind of desolate beauty, much like that of the Yorkshire moors of Sarah's youth and I was sure that she'd soon feel comfortable here. Perhaps the stark emptiness of the topography would force us closer together and help mend the breach that had recently appeared in the hull of our marriage. I hope so. After all, that was part of the reason why we were here. 
A shock of white at the corner of my vision caught my attention, pulling me from my thoughts, and I glanced to my right across the scrubby grass and sandy hills to make out a small white windmill in the distance. It nestled between two small rises and was ringed by a cluster of what appeared to be bare firs. Beyond that, the land sloped sharply upwards into high brown hills with thin snaking pathways that looked as if they might go on forever. Yes, I thought. There is definitely beauty here. Soon, we entered Seedon Village itself. The roadside buildings became slightly more frequent and a lot more habitable and turned into a small seaside village, one of those quintessentially English colonies that appeals to anyone who used to spend happy childhood summers on the coast. I'd been told to look for a pub called The Sand King, which proved quite easy to find, it being the only watering hole in town. It was an ancient, white-painted, low-roofed building with some sort of evergreen ivy climbing the crumbling salt-scoured walls and trailing like witch's hair from white timber window boxes that I just knew had to be constructed from the remains of wrecked fishing boats. I eased the car into the tiny gravelled car park and turned off the engine and waited for Sarah to complain. We going in then? I asked, staring straight ahead at the pub sign that swung gently in the breeze. It showed a weather-washed painting of an empty beach beneath a faded charcoal sky with The Sand King written below in dull gold ornate lettering. Suppose we have to? if you want to get the keys. Her reply was as emotionless as her face, which was so still that when I glanced at her, it seemed that she hadn't spoken at all. I sighed, opened the door, and stepped down onto the loose stones. The breeze was light and held a slight chill, but smelled vaguely of salt and rotting fish. It wasn't unpleasant, just different to the bland city odours that I was accustomed to. I could hear the sound of the waves like a constant backbeat, and it was soothing and welcoming, if a little lonely. Gulls wheeled far above, nothing but white specks against the grey sky. If I stood long enough, and still enough, I was sure I'd be able to hear them calling to each other through the gauzy clouds. The passenger door slammed and Sarah clumped towards the pub like a sulky teenager. Her back looked tense, shoulders bunched up towards her ears. She was always like that lately, and sharp with her words, when she chose to speak to me. It was as if there was a huge wedge between us that needed to be negotiated before we could reach common ground. Perhaps this break was exactly what we needed, I could get my work done in peace and some of the damage between Sarah and I could be repaired. I caught up with her before she reached the door, stepped in front of her and opened it. She stopped dead, glared at me and waited until I had stepped inside before following silently behind. The door led onto a cramped passage with rough plastered walls and a very low ceiling This, in turn, led into the public bar. The room was set out with a short wooden bar at the back 
and low wooden tables scattered throughout. There were one or two booths set against the side walls, between leaded windows, where scowling old men sat nursing pints of cloudy ale and not talking to each other. The only other customers were two middle-aged women sipping sherry at a table in the centre of the room and a scruffy-looking man aged anywhere between 30 and 50 who sat at the bar with his fingers wrapped tightly around a whisky glass. There was no sign of any staff and the drinkers each glanced at us for about two seconds before getting on with minding their own business. I approached the stained bar and peered through the small doorway behind, seeing nothing much but yet another gloomy little passage leading onto a stairwell that lurched down steeply into darkness. Eddie! It was the man at the bar, tipping forward on his worn perch and yelling into the doorway. A large man in a stained white shirt and leather apron came jogging up the steps and along the tight passage. I nodded my thanks to the yeller, who nodded sagely back before taking a sip of his drink. "'Morning, sir. And what can I get you?' asked the landlord, his ruddy face leaning towards me like a craggy boulder, tumbling from one of the cliffs we had seen earlier along the coast. His massive hands kneaded his apron, tugging at the worn leather. The yeller at my side let out a muffled bark, then swallowed what remained of his whisky pulled his coat around his stick-like body and left the building without another word. I turned back to the big man and placed my hands side by side on the bar top, feeling its dampness chill the flesh of my palms. The vibrations of past pint pots slammed down onto the wood seemed to thrum along my arms. I'll have an orange juice, please. Certainly, sir. And the good lady? With this, he nodded at Sarah, his bushy eyebrows wriggling like caterpillars above eyes that could have been blue, green or hazel in any given light. I'll have a G&T, said Sarah, knowing that her request would be like a physical blow. I hadn't touched a drop of alcohol in eight months, yet she still persisted in drinking heavily in my company. It was as if she were twisting the knife in an old wound and waiting for fresh blood to flow. The drinks arrived promptly and Sarah took hers to a table by the door. I stayed at the bar and just held the glass of orange juice for something to do with my hands. Would you be Eddie Fletcher by any chance? I asked the blustery old fella behind the bar. Aye, that'll be me. Large as life and twice as ugly, if you know what I mean. What can I do you for? He started wiping the bar with a filthy rag that he'd pulled from a pocket of his apron, smearing any slops that were there even further across its tacky surface. I'm Dan Harlow. I emailed you a few weeks ago about renting Dune House. Ah, of course, the beach house. I've been expecting you, but I got my dates mixed up as I deleted that last email. I thought you were coming tomorrow. I'm glad to meet you, Dan. He stuck out one of his shovel-like hands and pumped my own up and down so hard that my shoulder began to ache. That's my wife, Sarah, I said, and waved a hand in her general direction. Sarah raised her glass, 
made a facial expression that sat somewhere between a smile and a scowl. As usual, I failed to, to read her mood. Or perhaps I just couldn't be bothered to decipher her emotional swings and roundabouts, as this had been going on far too long. Bit of an odd time of year for a holiday by the sea, Dan. I mean, October can get cold here in Seden. Fletcher was fishing, wanting to know why we were here, but I wasn't offended by his intrusiveness. I was actually quite glad to tell him. To be honest with you, it isn't really a holiday. I'll be working too. Not to say that we aren't using the trip as a well-earned break. Working, you say? Uh, Would it be nosy of me to ask what manner of work a young man like yourself does? He raised his bushy eyebrows like a comedy yokel in some 1950s film. It suddenly occurred to me that he used this approach to mask a keen intellect and manipulated the gullibility of outsiders, along with their need to believe in cliché, to his advantage. I smiled, warming to the man. No, not at all. I'm an artist. I'm here to make preliminary sketches for a book I'm working on, an illustrated edition of a story by M.R. James. Aha, said Fletcher, dropping the act. Good old Montague Rhodes. Great, great campfire ghost stories those are. Which one are you illustrating then? He leaned forward, genuinely interested, and I grinned at his enthusiasm. Oh, uh, whistle and I'll come to you, my lad. One of the best, said Fletcher. Although, personally, I prefer a warning to the curious, with those buried clowns. I'd be interested in seeing the sketches, if you don't mind a hoary old bugger sticking his nose in. His eyes twinkled as he said this, moving from blue through to hazel in an instant. Certainly, I said. It would be my pleasure. Fletcher poured himself a half pint of something dark and sinister looking from an old hand pump, and pushed his small pot belly up against the bar. His eyes twinkled again, and this time with some hidden mirth. Well, if you're interested in James and the like, you'll be wanting to know about our ghosts, he said, lowering his voice for dramatic effect. I nodded, my eyes locked onto his elderly cherub's face, and waited, sipped my orange. Oh, we have lots of them here, Dan, like most old northern towns. The land round here is steeped in spectres. We have the ghosts of tourists who were dragged out to sea by the undertow, long-dead gentry who haunt their acres, scaring off the new tenants, wailing kitchen staff who died in childbirth after illicit affairs with their masters, all the usual kind of thing. The Sand King even has its own phantom, some old cellar man who died down there in the 1700s, who cries like a baby in the night. I ain't ever seen him, but I've heard his clamour. Then he laughed, gulped down the remainder of his drink, and ducked back down into that dark passage that led to the cellar, past the optics and the greasy mirrored tiles, and antiquated posters claiming that Guinness is good for you. Not long after this exchange, we were following Fletcher's dusty old Fiat back along the coast road. It seemed that he acted as caretaker for a lot of the untenanted properties in the area, and on the rare occasion that someone wanted to rent one of these, he acted as the letting agent and rent collector. He'd retrieved the keys from somewhere in the back of the pub, 
in some shady nook out of sight of the customers and instructed us to walk this way as he led us out into dusky daylight, leaving the pub unattended. I supposed that one of the elderly regulars would step behind the bar if anyone walked in for a drink. Dune House was situated approximately two miles out of Seedon and sat gathering the dust of memories atop a small hillock that spilled down directly onto the beach. Its location was perfect, both private and within easy reach of the village, and I was satisfied that the risk of taking on the place sight unseen had been justified. He's a queer old sort, said Sarah, her arms folded tightly against her breasts as if to ward off any unwanted attention. Oh, he's a canny old fella, full of stories, like most older folk in places like this. Call it local character. Sarah just made a heavy breathing noise in her nose and folded her arms even tighter across her chest, as if I'd even seen her breasts in the last eight months. Her sex life was so stale that she even put on her nightgown in the bathroom before coming to bed at night, when in the past we'd both always slept naked. I felt a sudden stinging loss at my centre, which was closely followed by what I could only call hatred. I closed my eyes and waited for the emotion to pass. I didn't want to go there again. Not here. Not now. Not ever again. Fletcher steered his Fiat off the road and onto a sandy track, then pulled up sharply in front of a plain little bungalow-style building. He climbed out of the car very slowly, clutching the small of his back as if he suffered from some kind of injury. Pain flashed briefly across his kind face, then retreated into his saggy features when he caught me looking. He smiled, rubbed his back, and motioned for us to come over. Dune House was a little run down, mostly due to the fact that it hadn't been inhabited since 1974. A bunch of those long hair hippie types, said Fletcher, with their headbands, acoustic guitars and illegal substances. They left the place in the right old state, with CND signs and God only knows what else daubed on the walls, and cannabis seeds all over the floor. Took me two weeks to put it all straight. Since then, I've just popped in once a month to spruce things up a bit. He gave us a quick, guided tour of the place. One big bedroom, a spacious living area with sliding glass picture windows that led out onto a wooden deck, a joint kitchen and dining area, and a small but functional bathroom with a shower rail installed over the big old claw-footed tub. It was basic, nothing much to look at, but it would serve our purposes adequately for the month that we intended to be living there, attempting to knit together the fractures in our marriage while I worked through my own demons in my sketchbook on the beach. Back outside, Fletcher and I stood staring out to sea while Sarah began to unpack our bags in the bedroom. The sun was quivering behind a hazy, shifting cloud cover, ducking in and out of view, the sea swelling softly, its sound comforting, womb-like. Fletcher's silent company was easy, natural. See over yonder, he asked, pointing away across the pale expanse of beach and towards a huge cliff that jutted out over the sea like a giant's chin. That's all that's left of the old Seedon boneyard, where all our dirty secrets used to be buried. Used to be? I glanced at him, 
registering his strange wan smile in the wavering sunlight. The whole cemetery slid into the sea back in the early 80s, caskets, bodies and all, just crashing down and slipping under the cold waves. The entire cliff face just crumbled away, natural erosion, they said, and it took the lot with it. So now, all our ancient dead ride those underwater currents, reaching towards the surface like drowning swimmers. The old church is still up there, what's left of it. Just stones now, scattered across the dirt. I strained to see if he was teasing me, weaving some shaggy dog story on my behalf. He looked me straight in the eyes and said, See, I told you we had our ghosts. And then he was gone, his little car charging back towards the village as I watched him go. I looked back up at the jagged snarl of cliff and wondered if any of the bodies had been found, washed clean of flesh by the tides. Then I went inside and boiled some water in an old tin kettle I found under the sink, listening to Sarah as she huffed and puffed and clumped about like a spoiled child in the other room. After making a pot of tea, I took her a cup, not really thinking anything of it. I walked up softly behind her as she bent over a suitcase and rifled through its contents. I reached down, placed my fingertips on her bare shoulder. She jumped as if she'd been shot, slumping forwards across the open case, and when she turned to look at me, there was such fear in her eyes that I felt guilty and ashamed all over again. The fear turned to anger, cutting off any potential tears, and she snarled at me. What the hell are you doing creeping up on me like that? I... I'm sorry, I didn't think. I made tea. I raised the chip china cup in my hand, offering it, like some kind of gift to appease an angry god. Sarah gritted her teeth, breathed heavily through her nose, her nostrils flared like those of a horse. Then she stood, straightened her jeans across her thighs with shaking hands, and took the mug from me. Don't ever do that again. I made to speak, my lips forming words that I was unable to voice, then just turned round and left the room, feeling angry and afraid and full of regret. I could see her logic. If I'd done it once, it stood to reason that I could do it again. I never meant to hit her. It had just happened, like a flash flood or a lightning bolt striking earth. She had pushed me too far and I had utterly lost control for an instant. Afterwards, I'd been remorseful and apologetic, but it had taken months for her to even think about trusting me again. But the look I'd just seen in her eyes had told me that real trust was a long time coming, and that made me hate her all over again. Then I remembered her lying in that tiny hospital bed, the bandages, the bruises beneath the dressings, and I knew that the person I really hated was myself. We slept together that night, despite the earlier misunderstanding. 
I didn't touch her, but kept my skin well away from hers by bunching the thin summer quilt between us on the mattress. I lay and listened to the sound of her breathing as it mingled with that of the night surf, knowing by its irregular rhythm that she was awake but reluctant to say anything. If I spoke, it might wreck the temporary peace we had found. So I kept my lips sealed. Moonlight shone through the large single window, shadows dappling the bedroom floor in random patterns. It looked as if there were small creatures scuttling across the walls, hiding from the light. When sleep finally took me, I was glad of its embrace and succumbed without a struggle. When next I opened my eyes, it was morning and I was alone in the bed. I yawned, scratched and made my way through into the living room. Sarah was nowhere to be seen, but there was a note in her untidy handwriting propped against a coffee cup on the small table at the centre of the room. It said that she had taken the car into Seden in order to stock up on provisions, and that I should fend for myself until lunchtime when she would meet me back here. Fair enough. I showered in the tiny bathroom and took my drawing materials out into the dunes. The air was fresh, almost brittle, and the sky looked deeper than my shame. I could smell those same sea salt and rotten fish odours, but this time with something vaguely chemical beneath. Gulls hooted and circled like hawks overhead. The surface of the sea was active, choppy. Soon my bleak mood was lifted, and I settled down on the sand to draw. Inspiration steered well clear of me that morning, taunting me from a distance. I kept thinking that I had a good, clear image in my mind, but as soon as I put pencil to paper, it slipped from my grasp like wet seaweed. By midday, all I had produced was a bunch of screwed-up pages, the scrawls upon them coming nowhere near the feeling that I was trying to convey. The sun had grown hotter and burned away the morning's cloud cover. Frustration was boiling up inside me like an underground spring. I threw the sketch pad aside and looked around me, taking in the empty beach, the white ticks of gulls careening overhead, the slate-grey slab of the sea, and that was when I saw it. The figure, standing inshore about a quarter of a mile from my position, still motionless as a statue, and facing in my direction. It looked like a man from my vantage point, but I couldn't be sure. Distance and a slight shimmering heat haze had obscured the edges of the person, turning them into a human-shaped blob with elongated arms against the backdrop of pale yellow beach and washed-out sky. I stared at the figure, wondering what, whoever it was, could be doing out here all alone. Then I remembered that I was alone too, and it didn't seem so strange after all. But still, the figure's mere presence made me feel uneasy. If only it would move, perhaps wave a hand, or turn and walk along the beach. Instead, it just stood there, rigid and unmoving, like a part of the landscape. Suddenly, a gull shrieked overhead, dipping alarmingly close to my head. When I looked up, 
A rogue beam of sunlight shone directly into my eyes, blinding me, and I was forced to shield them with an upraised arm. The laser-like glare vanished in an instant, leaving bright dots flaring in my vision, and the bird wheeled away, cawing loudly, as if in alarm. When I looked back towards the figure, it was gone. I checked up and down the length of the beach, even standing and cupping a hand to my eyes like some ancient mariner, but could see nobody in the vicinity. It was as if I'd imagined someone watching me from that spot on the sand. I sat back down and hastily sketched what I thought I'd seen on a clean page, a rough black silhouette that bled into the electric air around it, long, simian arms hanging, shaggy hair rustling in the soft breeze. It was just the image I'd been striving for, unreal, forlorn, and deeply unsettling. Glad that I'd at least managed to get something down on paper, I packed up my gear and headed back towards Dune House and lunch with my wife, uncertain of what her mood would be. You're late. She glanced at me from her place on the bulky sofa, some chick-lit novel in her hand and and R&B playing on the little portable stereo we'd brought with us. I've already eaten, but there's some cold cuts on a plate in the fridge. I walked into the kitchen without saying a word. I couldn't trust myself to remain calm and focused. Yes, I'd done wrong all those months ago. I'd hit her. But if all she was prepared to do was continually make me pay for my crime, then I didn't see the sense in us being here. I might just as well have come alone. That night, the bed we shared was like a battlefield between skirmish. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A middle ground was held, but it was as fragile as a glass ornament held in a tightening fist. When Sarah finally slept, her snoring began to irritate me, so I got up and lay on the living room sofa. 
I stared at the unchanging sea through the big glass patio doors and allowed its rhythm to soothe me. I can see why people like to live on the coast. The sea is a healer, a tender of wounds, an elemental force that buckles you to its will and guides you into a calmer frame of mind. In that moment, I felt tied to the currents like coral growing in some vast reef. Lulled by the gentle wash of the surf, I dozed. So when I saw the shape in the water, I assumed that I was dreaming. It was a figure, possibly the same one I'd seen earlier that day on the beach, and it was bobbing on the surface like a life boy. I felt observed, and then had a sense that something was groping inside me, picking through my emotions. Then my eyes snapped open, and I was fully awake once more. The shape on the waves was gone, and all I felt was a great weariness. Things were slightly improved between Sarah and I the following morning, and we even managed a civil breakfast together. Her special scrambled egg recipe, toast, fresh coffee. Although the situation could hardly be described as good, it was better. At least we were talking. Sarah even surprised me by smiling like she used to, her eyes sparkling like raindrops caught in the sun, and gripping my hand before I left with my sketch pad and pencils. The signs were good. If we both worked hard enough, we could get through this. It would take time, but it seemed that we both wanted to save our marriage. There was a fresh vigour in my step as I strode across the dry dunes, feeling the sea spray on my face like a tickling of tiny damp fingers and the yellow sun trying hard to burn through the ozone. I kicked at gnarly driftwood and dried out pieces of seaweed as I walked, safe in the knowledge, safe in the knowledge that there was nobody around to see my appalling football skills. Happiness flirted at the edges of my world, and I willed it to break down the doors and rush in. I set up camp at the same place as the previous day, laying down a checkered picnic blanket and opening the plastic toolbox that housed my materials when I was on the road. I opened my pad at the page I had worked on yesterday, hoping to tease out more of the image, and the shock of what I saw there was like a slap in the face. The figure I'd drawn was gone, erased. Someone, it had to be Sarah, had used a pencil eraser and rubbed it out. I could plainly see the telltale smears of graphite across the paper. I could barely believe that she could do this, deface my work in such a way. She knew how important, how vital my art was to me. But then again, Perhaps that was why she'd struck out at me in this way. A dim rage burned within me like a candle flame in an empty room, growing stronger and brighter the longer I stared down at the vandalised sketch. When I looked up from the pad, he was there again. This time I became certain that he was a man, and his name even appeared in my mind in the form of the old pub sign from Eddie Fletcher's place in Cedon Village the Sand King.
He stood in exactly the same spot as he had the day before, assuming exactly the same posture. His body was rigid, and this time I could make out that he wore some kind of long, dark overcoat, and that his arms were indeed almost comically overlong, like those of an ape. His unruly mop of shoulder-length hair churned sluggishly, like underwater flora, in the slight wind that had suddenly appeared, and he stared straight ahead, at me. It was then that I noticed the hand at the end of one of those elastic arms. A finger that looked to be about eight inches long was pointing straight down at the sand by his feet. He stood that way for hours or minutes. I couldn't tell which. Time had ceased to mean anything at all. I clambered to my feet, the wind growing stronger and blowing up little eddies of sand as I walked towards him. I took two steps forward. He took the same number back, retreating as I advanced. It resembled some kind of bizarre dance step. However far I walked towards him, he equaled the distance in the same direction, his stick of a finger still pointing at the same spot on the beach. The arm it protruded from angling stiffly upwards to accommodate the act. Then the wind gusted stronger than before, buffeting me slightly and summoning a swirling cloud of sand between us. Of course, when the sand cleared, the sand king was gone. It could have been no other way. I kept walking, stopping only when I reached the point at which he'd first appeared. There were large footprints visible in the sand. They led back a few feet and disappeared, as if the man who had made them had simply vanished into thin air. The wind died around me, and I suddenly felt like I was trapped in a vacuum, or wedged between two plates of glass like a laboratory specimen. Then the sound of the surf crashing against the beach, eroding the land and gradually chipping away at man's tenuous foundations, filled my ears and dragged me roughly back into the moment. I knelt and touched the sand where he had stood. It was hard, like a crust had formed, and when I pulled at it with my fingers, it came away in one piece, like a square of turf cut from a garden lawn. I dug deeper into the moist sand beneath, not knowing why, but compelled to do so anyway. When I unearthed the shell, it was with a strong sense of disappointment. I had expected something more, something mysterious. I retrieved the shell from the sand, brushing it off with my hands and examining it, it was a large conch, about the size of a child's head. Its colour was almost pure white on the exterior, but in the labial folds of the shell were displayed all the colours of a rainbow. It was beautiful, yes, but rather ordinary considering how I'd been led to it. The finer details of the James story that I was illustrating came immediately to mind. The protagonist, finding an inscribed whistle half buried in the ground in an old cemetery, and when it puts it to his lips and blows, he evokes some malignant stalking entity. Well, I'd already seen my phantom, so perhaps if I blew into the conch, he would be sent on his way, guided to wherever he needed to go by whatever sound I managed to call forth. Only half serious, 
I wet my lips and placed them upon the puckered orifice at one end of the shell. Blew as hard as I could. Nothing. Not a sound emerged, bar that of my own breath wheezing flatly through the ornate flutings of the multicoloured interior. Two. Look what I found. I placed the shell on the kitchen workbench, where Sarah was making a sandwich. It was just past two in the afternoon, and she had evidently spent the morning tidying the bungalow and reading. I thought that she might be glad to see me. I was wrong. A shell? Wow, isn't that amazing? She scowled as she spoke, her filthy mood firmly back in place, and her words thick with sarcasm. I felt like slamming the damn thing into her face, breaking bones and spilling blood against its sharp, pristine edges. Ashamed, I drew back and retired to the living room. Rain was beginning to fall outside, fat drops exploding against the glass of the patio doors and drenching the rotten timber decking that lay beyond. The morning sun, it seemed, had been a promise not kept. Sarah drifted into the room behind me, chewing slowly, like a bovine. Want one? she asked, lifting the sandwich to eye level. I shook my head, slumped into the sofa, and stared at the rain and the darkening sky that hinted at even more bad weather to come. I didn't mention the defaced sketch, or the man I'd christened the Sand King. They felt like secrets that I needed to keep to myself for now, so I buried them deep inside the delicate swirls and curlicues of my shell-like mind. The image amused me, but I didn't feel like laughing. The rain continued all that day, and by dinner time, I was sick and tired of the grim, strung-out silence that hung between us as we floated in separate orbits around the thing that we seemed unable to discuss. We'd barely exchanged three words all day, and those that we had had been terse and perfunctory. Not long after 5pm, I decided to drive into Sedan and have a soft drink or two with Eddie Fletcher. Rain hammered the windscreen as I journeyed the couple of miles into the village, obscuring my view and creating phantom shapes that beckoned from the roadside. The sensation of being observed had stayed with me, and I couldn't shake a chill that had been lodged deep within my bones. I was relieved when I saw the pub's battered sign, swinging to and fro in the wind and the rain, like a handcrafted pendulum. I glanced up at it as I ran into the building. There must have been water in my eyes to make it seem as if a figure stood on that painted stretch of beach, with shoulder-length hair and arms that reached down almost to its knees. After pouring what had somehow become my usual, Fletcher leaned across the bar and settled his roomy gaze on my rain-soaked features. There were only two other customers in the bar this early, a couple of sodden walkers sheltering from the elements, so he was able to offer me his undivided attention. I drank my juice, wiped stinging rain out of my eyes. Fletcher silently handed me a bar towel, and I thanked him before scrubbing at my hair and face. I needed a real drink more in that moment than I had in the entire time that I'd abstained. The desire was like something crawling inside me, a dull, 
and aching thing that could only be calmed by an infusion of alcohol. I wrestled with it, knowing that the drink had been a big part of the problem. After Sarah's miscarriage, I had retreated into a pint glass and surfaced only to shout and yell, and finally, to kick and punch my wife until my pain became hers. Too selfish to realise that her agony was probably greater than my own. You look like shit, he said, taking the towel from me when I'd finished rubbing my face red raw. Cheers, I said, unable to quell the smile that surfaced unbidden on my lips. Fletcher chuckled dryly and poured himself the customary half of some strange local brew. When he drank, his eyes shone, as if something in the liquid was adding to their luster. I had the sudden and enlightening realisation that Eddie Fletcher was probably an alcoholic. Fletcher asked me how we were finding Dune House, and we idled away half an hour in small talk. I found something on the beach, I said, finally voicing the reason that I'd come to him. Aye? The silence yawned between us, waiting to be filled. I took a drink, looked at the weathered floorboards, the hideous flock wallpaper, the mumbling walkers in their dripping jackets and red knee-length socks, anything but Fletcher's questioning face. A shell, I admitted, the words feeling like an anticlimax. A conch shell. It was buried. I saw someone standing on the beach and... When I went over to see, I found it buried there. Whoever it was had gone, but it was as if they'd wanted me to find the thing. Dan, there are many things in this world that initially don't make any sense. It sounds to me like you disturbed some beachcomber. Maybe he thought you were patrolling the beach and ran off. You can be fined for taking stuff from there these days, you know. A lot of valuable artefacts went into the sea when the cemetery went over. People used to be buried with their possessions way back when, and every now and then something special gets washed up with the jetsam when the tide comes in. After my wife died of the cancer, I used to walk that beach for hours on end. My Nora loved the place, and I suppose it made me feel closer to her after her passing. I found some odd things down there. Some of them I kept, some of them I just threw back into the sea, sent them back to where they belonged. I left after another drink and a further hour or two of easy banter, feeling slightly foolish but far mellower than I had when I'd left Sarah at Dune House. I no longer felt watched from afar, and the rain had even eased off a little. It was getting dark as I parked the car, and I saw the living room light go out when I killed the engine, as if on cue. I sat on the living room floor in the gathering darkness until midnight, sketching by the light of the moon. I did various still-life drawings of the couch and tried, unsuccessfully, to capture the elusive image of the Sand King. I felt that he had left me now. Perhaps the silent song of the shell had drawn him back out to sea, or perhaps I'd imagined him all along. My admittedly fertile imagination fueled into giving life to my insecurities by the bad feeling between Sarah and I. I recalled the hallucinations from my drinking days. Horse-height hounds with blood-red eyes and foaming mouths. 
spiders the size of small babies climbing the bedroom walls, mouths opening up in the palms of my hands and telling me untruths about where Sarah went when she left her bed. Each one of these was a spectre from my work, an image from a horror novel or heavy metal record cover that I'd painted, come screaming from the dreaming page to haunt my waking life in my darkest of hours. Perhaps the Sand King was some kind of flashback, a misfiring neuron in the back of my brain. I sketched some more and then went to bed. Sarah was curled away from my side, knees drawn protectively up to her chest and long hair obscuring her face like a shadow that had detached itself from the night. I lay on my back and stared at the ceiling, watching the reflections from the sea play across the plaster like ectoplasm. Closed my eyes. Listened to the water rustling like tracing paper, crumpled in giant fists, as I drifted away on its iron grey surface. When I rose the next morning to find the conch missing, the old anger flared within me again. Sarah had moved it. She must have. I could hear the clatter of pots and pans and cups from the kitchen, so padded through on bare feet to find out exactly what was going on. I was wary of sneaking up on her this time, so coughed to announce my proximity. Morning, she said, without even turning round to look at me. Morning. Have you moved my shell? I cut right to the meat of the thing, sparing no time for idle chit-chat. The conch shell... I left it on the coffee table last night and it isn't there. At last, she turned to face me, pulling her nightgown tight at the throat to hide the swell of her breasts. That shell? No, I haven't touched it. To be honest, I'd forgotten you had this smelly old thing. There was a tiny half-smile, and then she turned her attention back to the cooker. I saw that there was a pan of milk bubbling away on one of the gas hobs. Porridge? It's a bit chilly out there today, so I thought you could use that ready-brick glow. Deep down, I knew that she was attempting to cut through the heavy atmosphere that lay like an immovable object between us. But the disappearance of the shell had troubled me. In truth, it was bothering me a lot more than it should. I want my shell, that's what I want. The words came out with a venom that I hadn't altogether intended. Sarah stepped back as I spoke her hands opening and fluttering at her throat like caged birds. I haven't moved your fucking shell. For God's sake, Dan, what's got into you? It's a shell, that's all. But I knew that she'd moved it, just like she'd erased the figure of the Sand King from my drawing. I could see it in her eyes, in her guarded posture, no matter how much she protested. I moved towards her in the small, bright kitchen, my head beginning to throb, and spots of light exploding before my eyes. Before I even knew what I was doing, I'd grabbed her by the forearms and was pushing her up against the cooker. I pulled back a bald fist, shifted the other hand to her gleaming white throat. The pan of milk went crashing to the floor, its boiling contents washing across the cracked plastic tiles and scalding my feet. Screaming in pain and confusion, I let go of Sarah, hopping and trying to grab both feet with my flailing hands. She retreated and cowered in the corner like an injured animal, eyelids fluttering as if she were having a fit, mouth gaping as if she wanted to say something but couldn't locate the language. The pain in my feet receded to a dull pressure, and I sat on the floor in a puddle of cooling milk, 
rubbing my toes. The skin was bright red, wounded. Quietly, and with little fuss, Sarah began to weep. I didn't have a clue what to do, so I ran back into the bedroom and put on the first clothes that I could lay my hands on. When I left the house, Sarah was still hiding in the kitchen. I was unable to bring myself to face her to say goodbye. The icy mixture of wind and rain shocked my senses as I ran on aching feet across the sand, parallel to the thin ridge of shingle that bordered the surf. I couldn't allow myself to believe what I'd almost done. How the hell could I have lost control like that, and all over a shell? It was so absurd that I almost laughed, but the brewing storm ripped the sound from my throat as soon as I opened my mouth. I can't recall exactly where I went that day, or much of what I did. All I do remember is running, walking, stopping at a shop for chocolate bars and cans of juice, then running again. It seemed to me now that I was looking for something, but would only know what it was when I stumbled upon it. I think that I slept for a few hours in a broken-down church that I found high up on a cliff. Its ruins pocked the earth like scabs, and I managed to nap in the cave of a basement. I even have a painful memory of walking the torn cliff edge in a teary daze, searching for the uncovered remains of coffins and family vaults that hadn't slipped over into the hungry waves. Nothing else. It was night again when I returned to Dune House, seeking penance and atonement. If Sarah was still there, I would crawl to her on my hands and knees for forgiveness, if that was what it took. All thoughts of the conch shell, and of the Sand King himself, had left my mind. She was sitting on the bed when I entered the bedroom, staring more at the place where I stood than at me, with an expression that I couldn't read at all. Her eyes were hard, like granite in her pale face, and I could feel the anger radiating from her like heat. I sat on the floor in the doorway, too afraid to go any further, dripping wet and waiting for her to break the silence. We can't go on, Dan. Not like this. It's fucking terrible and stupid and heartbreaking. I remained silent. This was her turn. Her time to talk and mine to listen. Yes, I had a miscarriage. Yes, I was stupid and hurtful and slept with another man while you were drinking it all away. Yes, you were an angry fool who hit me when you found out. We've both made mistakes. So many silly silly mistakes but now it's time to work through them to get ourselves back into the shapes we were before it all came crashing down tomorrow we're leaving here we're going to have more counselling all that we need to make some headway if it fails again we split up this is it the last chance Nothing that I could say would make any difference. She was right, and we both knew it. So I just nodded my head. I didn't even apologise. To do so would have insulted her intelligence, and she already knew how horribly, pitifully sorry I was. Good night, Dan. 
see you in the morning. Her words were as hard as her eyes. And when she climbed into bed, fully clothed, and pulled the covers up around her chin, I knew that if we failed this time, I'd never see her again. Like she had said, this was it. The sound woke me, and it took me quite some time before I realised that it wasn't bleeding through from the dream I'd been having, a nightmare pursuit across a wide expanse of foam-edged sand. I struggled through layers of sleep and blankets and sat up straight on the couch. Staring through the patio doors, I could see the ever-busy ocean eating away at the shore, advancing inch by inch, hour by hour, day by day. The sound continued even after I was fully awake, a long, low wailing, just how I imagined the lowing of some huge prehistoric beast might sound, mournful as whale song, but deeper, more insistent, and it was getting louder, coming closer. I moved to the glass doors and peered along the dark stretch of beach. Far off and moving fast towards Dune House, was a figure, the Sand King. As he neared, I saw that he held something against the lower half of his face as he ran in an uneven, loping gait. It was the conch, and he was blowing into it, answering the call I'd silently sent out to him when I'd pressed it to my own dry lips. The call of the conch came again, raging through the night and into my ears like a black wind digging deep tunnels into my mind and planting its seeds of despair. His long arms flopped like those of a doll, the one not raised to his mouth, swinging freely at his side as he scrambled across the beach, sending up little puffs of sand in his wake. The closer he got, the more I could see of him, and what I saw was terrible. Long hair that hung in patches from a huge, misshapen skull, dark gouge of a mouth set in the middle of what barely resembled a face, black tunnels of eyes with movement deep within their sockets that could have been some dim form of intelligence, or merely the sea creatures that had made their home there, cavorting to the sound of his horn. My mind was racing. Images splashed and merged into kaleidoscope pictures and sensations that I couldn't even begin to decipher. I ran into the bedroom, expecting Sarah to be wide awake and shivering in terror. But she was still sleeping through the commotion, lying on her side with moonlight spreading like a stain on the pillow. I went to the bedroom window, saw him sprinting as best he could towards the front of the house. It seemed that pieces of his dark garments, or of himself, were flaking away and flying behind him like a flock of bats following in his wake. Then his ruined face turned towards me, and he dropped the conch on the sand. There was nothing even remotely human about his ravaged features. Instead, they reminded me of a tide-smoothed sculpture with limpets and mollusks writhing as they clung to it for survival. When his cavern of a mouth opened even wider, far wider than was natural, and his lower jaw dropped to his chest. I finally turned away and shuffled across the room.
I barred the bedroom door with whatever I could find. A chair, the wardrobe, the woodworm-infested dressing table that I hauled from the wall opposite. Sarah didn't even wake up when the patio doors exploded and he came crashing through like some rabid beast. I stood there, looking at the pile of furniture I'd shoved against the door and panting as if I'd run a marathon. Sweat ran down my back. There was only silence from the other side of the barricaded entrance, but I knew that he was there, only inches away, staring at the door and waiting for me to break. Then the conch sounded again, wailing illusionically through the sundered night of my soul as I blew into it with every ounce of strength that I had. I didn't even question the fact that it was now in my trembling hands or the sudden impulse that made me press my mouth against it. I glanced back at Sarah in utter disbelief. How could she still be sleeping? Was she actually awake and faking it to get back at me? In the wan moonlight, her face looked like crumpled linen against the pillow. And again, I had the sudden urge to smash it in with the conch that was gripped so tightly in my fist. Erase my problems, just as she had erased the drawing of the Sand King from my sketch pad. His music had stopped now, replaced by the distant hissing of the sea that faded in and out of audibility like television static. I looked at the door once more, then back at Sarah's stiff, motionless figure, wondering what to do next. I was lost. A sketch of a man helpless and wandering on a blank page. The urge to attack Sarah's uncaring body gripped me again. So I sat down on the edge of the bed and waited to see what the Sand King would have me do. And I wait, still, Thank you, Gary. Gary's work has appeared in magazines and anthologies in the UK and the US and has been reprinted in the Mammoth Book of Best New Horror and the year's Best Fantasy and Horror. He's a British Fantasy Award-nominated author of Rough Cut, All Your Gods Are Dead, Dirty Prayers, How to Make Monsters, and the aforementioned Rain Dogs, and he's edited an anthology of original novelettes titled We Fade to Grey. He is working simultaneously on two novels right now. No mean feat that, so best to you, Gary. For more on him, he blogs at www.garymcmahon.com. That's G-A-R-Y-M-C-M-A-H-O-N.com. The Sand King first appeared in All Hallows 42, the October 2006 edition, edited by Barbara Roden at Ashtree Press. And thank you, Paul W. Campbell, for a, well, it was a terrific reading of this tale. Paul is a Scot. I guess I need not tell you that. He lives in Scotland and enjoys hill running. I don't think he has any options, though, does he? And he recently did so with a collapsed lung, so he says. 
He is also addicted to audiobooks, and, well, I guess there are worse things to Jones over. He's also working on a novelization of an audio drama he wrote some years ago while doing so. He is trying to relearn how to write using more than just dialogue. Great job on this story, Paul. I'm looking forward to hearing more from you. I was bright and happy when I first encountered this story. First, it's gloomy and it's atmospheric. That always sets the mental stage for me. Gary's tales always put you into a well-painted, well-thought-out picture. And this is an excellent tale. Second, his people are always rich. They make you want to know more about them. And also, this story references one of the greats in the genre, M.R. James. His, oh, whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, is among the creepiest ghost tales in our language. And I hope to bring it to the nook one day. And some others of his. Well, that's from where Gary's opening epigram comes, by the way. Who is this coming? I guess that's always the question, isn't it, in horror? And it's almost always never answered. At least, not in this life. At least, not by the really good writers. Too often, I think, we fans of the form, well, fans of any genre, actually, are content to let the writers of today be our head's only content. Writers too frequently know only what's going on around them, thinking, well, wisely, perhaps from their standpoint, of selling their work, that they have to turn out what is now, what is selling, what editors are buying. But they forget the echoes of the past that really should inform their work. Well, we'll try to amend that here in the nook. We've had a Lovecraft, and soon, as said, we'll have some James. The long shadow of his whistle, and I'll come to you, my lad, is part of the darkness of Gary's Sand King. I think you'll like it if you haven't read it. If you have, I hope you'll like our presentation of it when we do it. And maybe we'll do the ash tree. And maybe, well, we'll see. If my memory is correct, I think it is Stephen King that has cited the ash tree as among the best horror tales in the language. So stop by our site, TalesToTerrify.com, and let us know what you like, what terrifies you. I appreciate it. And that will do it for the evening, children of the night. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's tale. I hope you'll tell your chums. Don't forget, it's not too late to sign up for the Narrator's Workshop. That's this Sunday, June 10th. Click on the link. Can't hurt. And now, up and doing, bright and chipper. Uncurl yourselves and consider your walk home. There's no ocean out there. No, no, not here. This is... Chicago. There is, however, a lake. A great lake. It's just uh, three blocks away. That way. There are boats out there. Some working. Some asleep. But there is sand. Beaches. There's darkness. If your walk home takes you close to the water's edge, well, you'll want to stay off the beach, won't you? It can be a strange place at night. You might like that, but you might want to keep your eyes turned inland, toward the streetlights, toward the old apartment buildings rising up above the light into the dark. Their eyes are looking out, over you, across the water, and, and well, 
You'll soon be home. You'll soon be under the covers and preparing for what will, of course, be pleasant dreams and live forever, Mr. Electro. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 